This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. I want to say a special thanks to everyone that contributed to my podcast last week. I greatly appreciate the support. It helps me a ton with all of the costs associated with producing it. Today, I am interviewing Renee Rosen about The Social Graces. Renee is the best-selling author of Park Avenue Summer, Windy City Blues, White Collar Girl, What the Lady Wants, and Dollface. She is also the author of Every Crooked Pot, a YA novel published in 2007. Renee lives in Chicago. The Social Graces is one of my May Buzz Reads top five selections, and I just had so much fun reading it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Renee. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Cindy? I am also great, and I'm super excited to talk about The Social Graces, and I just saw that you got a starred review from Publishers Weekly. That had to be super exciting. Oh, I was thrilled. I was so surprised and so pleased to see that. Well-deserved on this one. So why don't we start out and you just tell me a little bit about it? Okay. Uh, So The Social Graces is a story of Alva Vanderbilt and Caroline Astor vying for control of society in New York's Gilded Age. That's sort of the elevator pitch, but to really get a feel for the story, I need to pull back just a little bit and give us a lay of the land. This book starts in 1876, and during that time, women had no independence. They couldn't vote. They couldn't work outside the home. They couldn't own property. In fact, in many ways, they were the property of their husbands and their fathers. And the only arena where they could exercise any sort of influence or power was in sort of this make-believe land that they created called society. And New York society was divided into two groups. You had the Knickerbockers, or the old money, and then you had the Nouveau Riche, or the new money. And the Knickerbockers were descendants of the first Dutch settlers of New York. And they were very refined, very dignified, understated group. And you juxtapose them with this onrush of the nouveau riche. These were the industrialists and the Civil War profiteers. And families had come into enormous wealth, and they were very eager to show off their money. And they were very flashy, and the Knickerbockers thought they were absolutely gaudy. And the reigning queen of society at that time was Caroline Astor. She was the Mrs. Astor. She was a Knickerbocker, and her entire objective was to keep society exclusive and keep the nouveau riche out. And her rival was Alva Vanderbilt, who was a member of the nouveau riche. And not only did Alva want in on society, but she wanted to overthrow Caroline. And this was where it sort of sparked the feud between these two women. And they went from, it was a bit of the tail wagging the dog, where suddenly you had the Knickerbockers trying to keep up with the nouveau riche. You have these women out entertaining each other and out spending and out dressing, throwing parties that went till dawn. And it's funny, a bookseller friend said, oh, it's like they're the original Real Housewives of New York, but in worth gowns. (laughs) I like that. 
Well, that's a great way that you explain it, just to kind of lay out the entire setting for your story and how it all came about. And then Caroline Astor was the one responsible for the 400, correct? The 400 families that were considered to be the old realm? Yes. This was this very exclusive group of supposedly 400 families that were in society. Now, Ward McAllister, who uh, was Caroline's sidekick, he was sort of the tastemaker and the ultimate snob, he said that there were only 400 people that were comfortable in a ballroom. Otherwise, if you got beyond that number, you made other people uncomfortable. And that list was actually published in the New York Times and sent people just into a tizzy. How often was there a new 400 or were people shifting on and off? Every once in a while, they had to let somebody new in. You know, people died, people, you know, remarried. So it was always sort of changing. But if you weren't on that list, you were never going to get into Mrs. Astor's annual ball. And if you weren't invited, chances are you were at home with all the lights out so that (laughs) your friends would think you were out of town. That was the only reason why you weren't at the ball. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Everybody's sitting here figuring out, okay, if I'm not invited, I need to figure out some way that people think I was invited, but I just couldn't make it. Yeah. I mean, they really used exclusivity as a weapon. Well, I think that's something that has continued on. I mean, I think that that's a way that people retain their power. Yes. Well, how did you decide to write about the legendary rivalry? You know, I had written another book that was set in the Gilded Age, but in Chicago, and that was about Marshall Field. And I really loved the time period. I loved the the clothing and the etiquette and all. And I was talking with my editor and my agent, and they both sort of mentioned, you know, one mentioned Consuelo uh, Vanderbilt, and the other said, oh, what about Gilded Age New York? And I started doing some preliminary digging. And as soon as I stumbled upon Mrs. Astor and Alva's story, I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This is so juicy. I, I know I can have just a field day with this. Gilded Age New York is one of my favorite time periods to read about. So the second that I saw what your story is about, I knew I had to read it. Good. Thanks. Can you tell me about your research? I'm assuming there were probably a lot of rabbit holes you went down and just the things you found and how you decided what to include, what not to include. Yeah, absolutely. It was I had a pile of books that I would consult for almost every scene because I had to get the etiquette right. You know, it's something as simple as how you drop off a calling card. There was a whole procedure for that. There was a process for everything and anything. And so I did a lot of just reading about the Gilded Age and reading about the Astors and the Vanderbilts. Then in addition to that, we went to Newport and went and saw the cottages. And for people who aren't familiar with this, Newport was the summer sort of playground for the Gilded Age families. And they had, they called them cottages, but they were actually just palatial mansions. And they were there for six weeks out of the year. And the women had to have 90 gowns on hand for a six week stay in Newport. So we went there and we toured Marble House, which had been Alva's creation and, you know, the various other cottages. We also took a walk along Cliff Walk, which proved to be a really daunting task. I almost lost my life on there. But I did get a really good scene for the book that came out of that happy accident and then went on to New York. But sadly, a lot of, you know, the Gilded Age homes are no longer there. For example, 
Caroline Astor's townhouse is now the site of the Empire State Building. Cornelius Vanderbilt's home is now Bergdorf Goodman. So there wasn't quite as much to see in New York City anymore, although I did go to, you know, the historical society there and and to Trinity Church and places like that. The Vanderbilts had a whole block at one point, didn't they? Like three or four homes that were together? Yeah, and that was Alva's doing. She started, you know, she really felt that she needed to beautify New York and she wanted the Vanderbilts to be taken seriously. And so she embarked on creating this, uh, she called it Petit Chateau, and it was on Fifth Avenue. And it was a little bit further north because back in the Gilded Age, people didn't really go above the 30s. That was just considered wilderness. (laughs) And here she was building, you know, in, in the 50s up there. And it just looked like this the chateau out of France. And it was just exquisite. And that sort of started the building frenzy of all these Gilded Age families trying to outbuild one another. Well, I've been to Newport, but it's been a very long time because I lived in Westport, Connecticut when I was young. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we visited then, but I haven't been back and I would love to because I do think that is one of the few places where many or at least some of the residents from that era are still standing. Yeah, and it's it's spectacular. I mean, when you see just the detail and, you know, even the fireplace mantles are just amazing in these golden ballrooms. It is so over the top. It's kind of hard to imagine these days. Yeah. Well, what was the highlight of writing The Social Graces? I think it was all the surprises. It was a challenging book to write. It took quite a few stabs to find the right tone for it and to find the heart of the story. But I think the highlight was watching Caroline and Alba sort of materialize for me beyond just being these stick figure, rich, entitled women who didn't seem all that appealing on the surface at all. And I realized there was so much more going on underneath because they were mothers, they were daughters, they were sisters. And they had problems, challenges, you know, controlling their daughters, just like women today have their, you know, mother-daughter relationships. And I don't want to give too much away, but Caroline's daughters really gave her a run for her money. And, you know, and then there's a lot of people know the story of Alva and her daughter Consuelo basically being sold off to a duke. So, you know, there was there was a lot going on there. That is always one of the things that amazes me about this time period is that women really had no rights. Obviously, they couldn't vote yet. They couldn't do anything without their husband or father or whomever approving it. So you can see where they might want to take some control with at least society and feeling like they had something they were, they had some power over. Yeah. And they, they absolutely sort of created it. They built it off of, you know, uh, European royalty. That was sort of their model. But, you know, in the case of Caroline Astor, she was unique in the sense that she had inherited a great deal of money when her father passed away. So unlike these other women that literally had to run their ledgers by their husbands every week for what they were spending, Caroline wasn't beholden to her husband or anyone. She was more powerful than her husband. And so she uh, she had a lot of muscle that she could flex, but she was the exception. So tell me a little bit about the title for this one, because I mean, it seems to me kind of a play on words. 
Yeah. So interesting story. I, I struggle with titles all the time. And I actually had the title before I had the book written and that almost never happens. And I ran it by my agent. I ran it by my editor. I really loved it. And I thought, I don't want to get too attached to this title, The Social Graces, because I know those things change. And sure enough, about three quarters of the way through, they said, mm, we all started to, to sort of have second thoughts about it. And so while I was trying to come up with some other titles and I came up with like, you know, the New York Royals and I was told that sounded like a baseball team. <laughs> I couldn't come up with anything that beat it, but I was still generating like, you know, just laundry lists of potential names. And then they showed me the cover and they decided to use the original title, The Social Graces, and it just all worked. So we kept it. Well, I think it's perfect. It, you know, it just seems like it's exactly what you're describing in the story. And I just thought it was great. And then that cover, you had to be thrilled to pieces when you saw it. That was the first cover that they showed me. And again, that almost never happens. And we didn't change a thing. I, at one point, I started overthinking things as I tend to do. So I had them play with the font and play with the colors. And then I went back to the absolute original cover that they showed me. And it just seemed to capture the fun of the book. And there's sort of a Greek chorus in the book. And those women on the front, they just, they're, they're the chorus. I agree. I, I think covers are so fascinating because you'll look at it at the beginning before you've started the book. And, you know, it usually draws you in, or if it's not a good cover, it doesn't. But if it is a good cover, it draws mm -hmm. you in. And then after you read the book, you look at it again and either think, well, they've missed some parts of it. The colors aren't right or the people aren't right. Or you'll think the cover fits the book perfectly. And then you notice all these things that are even more relevant to the story after you've finished it in the cover. And I just, I, I love covers. Yeah. And they, you know, we always say, you know, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but come on, we all do, right? Oh, I completely judge books by their cover and will not read them most of the time if I don't like the cover, which I know is <laughs> silly, but there's so many books out there. And I'm like, if it's not going to draw me in, then it is probably not the book for me. Yeah. I, life, life is short and there's so many books, so little time. Absolutely. Well, do you have a favorite of your books that you've written? You know, uh, it, it's so hard to pick a favorite and especially like whatever I'm working on tends to be the one that, that really captures my heart. But the, the book that really sort of changed the way I see the world and the way I hear music would be Windy City Blues, which is a story of chess records. It's the story of the birth of Chicago blues and an interracial love story set during the birth of the civil rights movement. And it's more timely now than it was when I wrote it. But as I said, it really changed the way I hear music. It changed the way I see the world. It just, it was a hard book to write, but one that I'm probably the most proud of. But that being said, I really, I fell in love with Caroline and Alva and the other little side characters. And usually it's, it's, it's hard to pick a favorite. Well, it's like talking about picking a favorite of your children. But I love yeah. Windy City Blues. I went to school in Chicago. I love Chicago. And I just thought that story was fabulous. It was one of my favorite books the year that it came out. Oh, thank you. What's the best thing about being a writer, would you say? Mm. Well, I love the fact that I get up every morning and do what I just love to do. You know, it, it feels like play. Uh, the other aspect are the people that I've met. You know, my, my fellow writers, industry people, booksellers, readers, 
it's really put me in touch with people that I probably wouldn't encounter otherwise. Even while doing my research, I've made some wonderful friends that way. And that's been really, really, it, it's just, to, to get up every day and spend your life around books and words and reading and writing. It's just, it feels like a really rich environment for me. And I'm, I feel very, very fortunate. It's, it's not lost on me that I get to do this every day. I think it's such a wonderful group of people, just just all of the people you just mentioned, the writers, the publicists, the publishers, the readers, the reviewers. It's just such a welcoming and interesting group of people. It's it's a wonderful community. It's so inclusive. And I feel like people are so generous with their support and encouragement. And I feel like everybody's kind of rooting for everybody. I think that's right. Exactly. And I love Bookstagram. And I just think it's so much fun to see what my friends are reading. And I can tell there are certain people who I align with. So if they like a book, I'm probably going to like it and vice versa. And people are always shooting me notes. Have you read such and such? And you know, it's just Mm -hmm. such, such a fun, entertaining group of people. And like you said, so inclusive and everybody just wants every, you know, to build everybody up. And there aren't a lot of groups like that. Yeah, I agree. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm super excited. I don't have a title yet, but it is uh, based on the cosmetic icon Estee Lauder and her life and how she built her cosmetic industry. And so it's set in the late 30s to the mid 40s. And it's been a lot of fun to research. She's a very complex woman and really inspirational. And I also have some fictional characters mixed in with her. So and I'm having just a ball with that. She was at the forefront of the makeup companies, right? Yeah. You know, you had Elizabeth Arden, you had Helena Rubinstein already out there, but they were almost of a different generation. And Esty was such a pioneer. You know, nobody did a gift with purchase before Esty did. And nobody did in-store demonstrations. You know, she started her business out of beauty salons in New York. And, you know, she, she definitely changed the industry. So she's been really fascinating. I knew she had started in New York, but I didn't realize that she'd started out of beauty salons. That's fascinating because you always think of her as department stores now, you know, because she and the many others that have followed in her footsteps that are now in department stores and the makeup counters. But I knew she had sort of revolutionized the way the makeup industry worked. Yeah. And, you know, her, her very, her first big, big uh, milestone was getting into Saks Fifth Avenue. As I said, you're not really in business unless you're in Saks. And she tried time and time again to get in there. So the the book really sort of focuses on how she gets her, her foot in the door there. Oh, I can't wait for that. Will it be out next year? Uh, I think 2023 is what we're looking at. It takes a while. I totally get it. Yeah, I'm still in the writing phase, but I'm I'm really I'm really enjoying it. Oh good. Well that sounds like it'll be fascinating. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh God, there's so much good stuff out there. A couple books that come to mind are uh The Nature of Fragile Things by uh Susan Meisner, and I know you had her on the show. It takes place in nineteen oh six, the San Francisco earthquake, and I just thought that was beautiful and beautifully done. Melanie Benjamin's The Children's Blizzard. Another great piece of historical fiction. I also just finished Erica Roebuck's uh, The Invisible Woman about Virginia Hall. And I just thought that was, again, fascinating. So well done. She took this woman and just really 
made her so fully dimensionalized. And a book that is coming out the end of March, it's out March 30th, is a book that I'm so excited about. It's called The Women of Chateau Lafayette by Stephanie Dre. It is a multi-generational saga, three women centered around a Chateau Lafayette in France, and it spans three wars, including the American Revolution, the French Revolution, World War I, World War II. I guess that's four wars. And it's just fascinating. I can't even get my head wrapped around the amount of research that went into that book. So I'm really, really excited for people to start reading that. I, I just thought it was amazing. I loved Erica Roebuck's The Invisible Woman. I interviewed her also, and I just thought that book was absolutely outstanding. Didn't she just bring Virginia Hall to life? She did. And I participated in a Bookstagram book club where we talked about it. You know, everybody was just so amazed at how well she did bring her to life and just how she could put you in her shoes, you know, with the prosthetic leg and having to go across the Pyrenees and everything. It was just truly an amazing story. Yeah, I agree. Renee, thank you so much for taking the time to be in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I can't wait for the social graces to get out in the world and have everyone reading it. Oh, well, thanks, Cindy. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Renee's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.